chapter 3, verses 1 to 11. Then Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, My daughter, shall I not seek security for you, that it may be well with you? And now is not Boaz our kinsman, with whose maids you were? Behold, he winnows barley at the threshing floor tonight. Wash yourself, therefore, and anoint yourself, and put on your best clothes, and go down to the threshing floor. But do not make yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and drinking. And it shall be when he lies down that you shall notice the place where he lies, and you shall go and uncover his feet and lie down. Then he will tell you what you shall do. And she said to her, All that you say I will do. So she went down to the threshing floor and did according to all that her mother-in-law had commanded her. And when Boaz had eaten and drunk and his heart was merry, he went to lie down at the end of the heap of grain. And she came secretly and uncovered his feet and lay down. And it happened in the middle of the night that the man was startled and bent forward. And behold, a woman was lying at his feet. And he said, Who are you? And she answered, I am Ruth, your maid. So spread your covering over your maid, for you are a close relative or redeemer. Then he said, May you be blessed of the Lord. My daughter, you have shown your last kindness to be better than the first by not going after young men, whether poor or rich. And now, my daughter, do not fear. I will do for you whatever you ask, for all my people in the city know that you are a woman of excellence. Well, good morning. J.D. didn't get any bad names that time, but he got the, one of the steamiest passages in the Scripture. <laughs> Well, it's good to be together again. We're in the book of Ruth, obviously, and we're past the halfway point, so I need to decide where we're going to go next after Ruth is finished. But um, if you remember last week, we, we were in the latter part of chapter 2, and we saw a great emphasis there on Boaz, the author's bringing forth who Boaz is, and we saw his generosity, didn't we? didn't we? We saw kindness. We saw faith. Especially the way he treats Ruth, the Moabite foreigner. He goes above and beyond in, in that passage, allowing her to glean in the best places, providing protection for her, treating her better than she deserves. Uh, in the last couple verses of chapter 2, we learn that he's not only a godly man and a good man, but he's also a relative. And to the original hearer, that would spark a few questions. Maybe not to us, but could this go beyond just providing food? Could he be the answer to saving the line of Elimelech? Remember the big problem with Elimelech and both his sons dying. Look at the verse 11 and 12 right in the middle of chapter 2. If, if your Bible's open, I hope it is. That's really the climax of that whole chapter, that whole act of chapter 2. 
right here, Boaz says he has heard of Ruth. Remember that? He's heard all she's done for Naomi and leaving her family and her land. In other words, her reputation has preceded her. And then what does he do? He commends her and he blesses her for it. Her devotion has defined her here now as a woman of noble character. Well, I hope you were challenged and inspired by Ruth or by Boaz and some of the character traits we saw last week. As well as God's continual, at every turn in this story, His sovereign presence and guidance. Well, we're going to um, move into this new passage, but let's ask God to meet us today. Father, thank you that you do. You are here. We pray that you would be working in our hearts. Things may seem like they're going along fine, but we, we need you. We need your presence and we need your help. We need to be challenged at times. I know I need that. We need change at times in our life. We need encouragement. The world around us doesn't agree with you in so many ways and we see that in this passage here i pray that we'd be strengthened in good resolve not to be an enemy of those people around us but to hold to your truth and faith just pray this that you would now be with us help us to learn help us to be challenged in jesus name amen As we come to this new act, remember each chapter is basically broken down, um, defining the four acts of the drama of Ruth. So now we're stepping into a new act of, of, of the drama, Act 3. As you, uh, as you know, <clears throat> the passage is a little steamy, and I'm going, to be, I'm going to be a little open this morning, so there's just a warning to you. Um, I think there's a good opportunity here for us. You notice there's a few seats empty. Maybe they got the uh, they didn't want to hear it and they went somewhere else. But um, this is a good opportunity, and I think we need to take the opportunity for us to be reminded about God's design for love and for sex. And we're going to look at that a little bit. So as we come to Acts three, um, probably a few weeks have passed. The harvest has progressed. Ruth has been gleaning with Boaz and his harvesters consistently. Remember, he told her he should do, she should do that. And then you see Naomi now initiate this new phase. If you remember in chapter 2, Ruth initiates the phase. Here we have Naomi initiating the phase. Um, take, take, to see if you agree with me, but I think there might be an improvement in Naomi's outlook uh, there, there's energy and there's hope that we haven't seen so far, um, but you can pay attention to that as we go along. So in, in verse 1, you see Naomi as a loving parent, really, now. She addresses Ruth as her daughter and asks the rhetorical question, shouldn't I find rest for you that you be taken care of? Well, she's talking about a place of permanence. She's talking about tranquility for Ruth when she says rest. Naomi then goes on, she wants Ruth to be provided for, in other words, to be well for her, whatever your translation looks like there. She's, of course, thinking toward establishing um, Ruth as a wife in the home of a good man. That's rest and provision. Well, we don't see um, Ruth's answer, but it's likely she agreed with that, and 
notice here, I think it's worth pointing out, Naomi doesn't say anything about herself at this time. She doesn't say anything about preserving her family line. We get the idea that she's concerned about Ruth. That might be a little bit of a shift for Naomi, a little bit of a change. Well, Naomi then launches into her plan in verse 2 with another rhetorical question. Now, isn't Boaz our relative? Well, she's drawing Ruth in. She's got Ruth's attention now. She goes on to verse, in verse 2. And in addition, haven't you been working with his female harvesters? So in other words, Boaz, he has shown favor already. We, we know he's proved himself. He, we, we know a little bit about him. Now, before we go on, let's remind ourselves that Naomi's plan here is saturated in the culture of the day. Why would Naomi be excited, for example, about Ruth marrying a relative? Well, the, the, um, what, what is meant by the family redeemer here in this passage anyway? I don't think we're going to get into all of that today, but we will, as time goes on, try to do our best to understand the meaning, to find ourselves in that culture just a little bit. It's, it's difficult to do, but I just want you to keep an open mind and not try to fit our cultural norms into their cultural norms. Some weird stuff. Now, they would look at our culture and say there's some weird stuff there too. So that's all right. Now, this scheme we're looking at of Naomi's, it's not founded on Boaz being the most handsome man, the richest man, or even the only available man. It largely has to do with the appropriateness of the family ties. In other words, the desire to care for Ruth. Maybe there's some of that chesed going on here, that loving kindness. Well, Naomi has Ruth's full attention, and in the latter part of verse 2, look at it there, she moves on to the particulars of her plan. This evening, Boaz will be winnowing barley on the threshing floor. Well, Boaz is going to be doing what again? Maybe that makes complete sense, but I want to take a minute and just walk through a little bit of what Boaz was doing. So he and his hired hands, they would be taking at least part of their barley harvest to the threshing floor to get the grain out of the, out of the harvest. We've been with them in the field, remember? They cut there, they gathered the mature stalks with the grain heads attached. Now they transport these to the threshing floor. That would have either been um, an area of hard-packed soil, or even better, an exposed flat rock somewhere, a large rock, perhaps up in the hills more than in the flat fields. Sometimes these threshing floors were used by many farmers at the same time, and they may have been a distance from the field. Well, the harvesters would take the dried stalks and heads of grain. They would then thrash them on this hard surface, either with a hand tool of some kind, perhaps even with their cart or the, the, the uh, feet of their animals running it over them. And as they did that, of course, that would separate the heavier, valuable grain from the chaff, the stalks and the holes. Now, these threshing floors would have needed to be located in a place that received a consistent breeze or wind. Eventually, after it was thrashed, the material was tossed into the air, probably with a fork of some kind, and the wind would then separate the lighter material, the chaff, blowing it from the floor, off the threshing floor, 
and the, the heavier, valuable grain would fall to the floor to be saved. So that, that work of separating the chaff from the, the grain is called the winnowing process. Well, typically in the Willamette Valley, we have a little different method of getting this all done. That's Mary Domes there, by the way. But, um, but Boaz, not having a shiny new combine, he would be taking his barley harvest to the floor, to the threshing floor this night. And so you can presume there, according to the wording, that it was afternoon at least, maybe it was evening. There was a consistent breeze to get the winnowing done. But the importance, I think, of the night that we see here is that Boaz was to spend the night on the threshing floor near his pile of grain, probably in guard of that valuable grain. Now with that information, Ruth, here's the plan. Verse 3, wash yourself, put on perfumed oil, wear your best clothes, go down to the threshing floor. Obviously, it's hard to get around. Naomi wanted her to be attractive. I think the intent was to do their part in moving Boaz toward wanting, considering Ruth to be his bride. I don't know, maybe Ruth, she'd been out in the field a few weeks and she hadn't had a bath. She, it, was t- it was time for one, but... You see there, put on your best clothes. That may be actually better translated, and maybe some of your translations reflect that, but better translation may be simply that you would put on what a special outer garment, a, a large outer garment that could be used as a blanket to keep warm if you're sleeping outside. But continuing there in verse 3, Once you've arrived at the threshing floor, Ruth, don't let the man know you are there until he has finished eating and drinking. Well, this doesn't mean go incognito or cover part of your face. This means hide out. Watch from the woods. Sounds a little bit fun, but maybe a little bit dangerous. Boaz and probably others, other men, other owners were there looking for suspicious activity. And she's to hide out. She's to wait until he's had his meal and even until he's sleepy. Then in verse 4, and just to paraphrase it, notice where he's lying down, go in, uncover his feet, and lie down yourself. Then he'll explain to you what to do. Well, what is meant by all that? There are a lot of customs here that we don't get immediately when we read the English, but let's, we'll work on it for just a minute. Um, this is the climax of Naomi's plan, the crucial moment. Ruth was to be sure that she knew where Boaz had gone to sleep, not some other man, and then approach, uncover his feet, lie down herself. And then Boaz, assuming he wakes up at some time, at some moment, um, was to tell her privately what to do. So we see Ruth consent, in obedience really, probably respond and say, verse 5, I'll do all of that. I'll do it all. Now, I'm going to say it a few times, but recognize Naomi's plan is risky. There are plenty of chances for things to go wrong, for Ruth to be humiliated, for accusation, even for abuse or for harm to come to her and even Naomi. In verse 6, then, ambitious Ruth puts this plan into action. Now, we don't know her level of agreement entirely with the details, um, or even if she fully understood all the customs of Israel, 
But she's acting upon what Naomi had said. She's, she's obeying despite the dangers. I, I wonder what, what her fears might have been or what her faith was like at this moment that she heads out into the evening. Wouldn't be surprised if there were a few butterflies in her stomach. Well, verse 7, we find Boaz in good spirits. I don't think we're seeing that he was drunk, but he was satisfied with food and drink after a long day's work, after a long harvest's work. The grain's piled on the threshing floor. The crop is in. The prophet is realized. Really, Yahweh has blessed. So eventually then, he lies down to sleep. Ruth then moves in secretly from her hiding place and uncovers his feet and lays, lays down. Now, without familiarity with the cultural norms, like most of us are here, doesn't this strike one as scandalous? Just a little bit? I mean, it's night. The scene is private. She's sneaking around. She's supposed to be attractive. There's intentional intrigue here by the author. The author's done that on purpose. In fact, it gets even more intense if we realize that the threshing floor was often a place of illicit sexual behavior. And the phrase, uncovering the feet, was sometimes used as a euphemism for sexual activity. Anyone uncomfortable yet? I mean, what are we to make of all this? That's the question, right? What, what's, what's happening? Well, there's some difficulties. There's things to, to work on in the, in the wording in the passage. But as always, I want to try, my hope, our hope should be to align ourselves with what the author is trying to communicate. What the author of the scripture is trying to communicate in order to align ourselves with God's meaning, to find God's meaning. Now, as we think about Boaz and Ruth in this encounter, let's, let's not forget some things in their history. Specifically, a couple manipulative moves made by some women in both Ruth's and Boaz's ancestry. In Genesis 38, you have a sordid tale of Tamar securing a son for her dead husband and herself by seducing her father-in-law, of all things. That was in Boaz's family tree, not that long before this. In Genesis 19, we find Lot's two daughters also securing themselves for themselves sons by sad and illicit ways. One of those sons was named Moab. That was Ruth's great, great, some distant grandfather. So are we not, is the reader not supposed to keep in mind, remember those things along with the sexual perversion of their day that they lived in, the times of the judges, remember that? Those things need to be in our minds. But wait, we know that God has a different and better plan for sex, for marriage. And are we to wonder, are we to be intrigued? What? What's happening here? Are Ruth and Naomi simply manipulating Boaz for their own ends? You remember in chapter 1, Naomi's bitter state. Remember she was emptied, as she put it, from the Lord. She found herself very bitter. And that was primarily due to the loss of family line and family name. 
So is Naomi then simply after an illicit sexual encounter, albeit one that fits right in with the culture of the day and the times of the judges, just to produce an heir? Is that what she's after, her plan entails? Now, this all might be a little uncomfortable, a little awkward for us, but I think the the clever author would have us sit on the edge of our seats, perhaps squirming a little bit. What direction is this story going to go? But we've also seen the noble character of both Ruth and Boaz, haven't we? But as you come and stop right at this point, it could go bad real fast right here on the threshing floor. All the elements are in place. Before we jump further in the story, I want to take a minute. You know, we all have and we, at least we will face times when all the elements are in place for immorality in our lives. In the moment, it seems so fulfilling, even unavoidable at times. And we live in a culture that in some ways could be compared to that time of the judges. Sexuality is perverted. Satan, the culture around us, and our fleshly desires, we've perverted God's good design for sexuality in marriage alone. So what do we do as God's people when we are tempted, when we face our flesh, when all the elements are in place. It may involve another person, or perhaps it's alone in our own thoughts when no one else is looking over our shoulder at our phone screen. You know, there's lots of sin that's acceptable and even celebrated around us, but for the man, for the young man, for the woman, for the the young woman of God, There's a different path to take, and it's a right path. It's a better path. I think our decisions in the realm of sexual purity, they have definite consequences, and they define our futures. Some of you remember the Mount St. Helens in 1980 blowing her top. I don't remember. I wish I did, but that was right before my time. The final eruption of Mount St. Helens was not a sudden event. For two months prior to the massive blast, the most deadly and destructive in American history, earthquakes and volcanic activity signaled a major event was underway. Authorities had plenty of time to sound the alarm and warn those people living nearby of the looming danger. Yet despite the seriousness of the threat, some people chose to ignore the warnings. Probably the best known of those who refused to evacuate was Harry Randall Truman, not the president, some other guy, 83-year-old man who was the owner and caretaker at the Mount St. Helens Lodge at Spirit Lake, right, right below the mountain. Well, he was not about to leave just because scientists thought there was danger. Truman told reporters, I don't have any idea whether it will blow, but I don't believe it to the point that I'm going to pack up. And move out. On May 18, 1980, Truman and his lodge were buried beneath 150 feet of mud and debris from the the volcanic eruption. His body was never found. Well, I just want us to see there are consequences for choices we make concerning 
and in particular this morning, our sexual behavior. Believing God and His plan is paramount. You know, you, you may not know what the results are, what the future is based because of a decision. You may not have the ability at the moment to understand, but trust the authorities and move out. Trust God and flee. 1 Corinthians 6.18 says in specific to this subject, flee sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the person who is sexually immoral sins against his own body. Trust God. Make the right choice. The consequences are real. Now, I do want to say I have no intention of heaping guilt upon anyone. God forgives. Praise Him. We all need that. And we can move forward from stuff behind. And we can find wholeness again in His forgiveness. And look forward. Make decisions now. Well, that's enough of that. Back to the uh, passage at hand. You, if you look at verse 8, so far the plan has gone according to Naomi's hopes. But what would come now of this encounter? I think we need to keep in our head, the author wants us to notice further the character of both Ruth and Boaz. At midnight, Boaz was startled. He turned over, and there, lying at his feet, was a woman. At the time when the night was half over, is literally what it says, midnight, there at his feet was a woman. Now, the decisions made here, I think this is a momentous event. The decisions made here would define their futures, Ruth and Boaz. It would, it would prove their character, and by the way, it would set an example for thousands of years. I think simply the reason that Boaz was startled here, um, you look, I don't know what your translation says there, but I think it's simply because Ruth had uncovered his feet. The word could be translated trembled or shivered. If someone uncovers my feet, don't try it, I'm going to wake up pretty soon because I'm going to be shivering. So here you have Boaz sleepily trying to reposition and cover his, pull his mantle back over his feet so he can sleep. And then all of a sudden he's very awake. There was a woman. Now you knew she was there, but that gets your attention anyway. Boaz immediately asks, you can almost hear the tenseness in his voice, who are you? I think Ruth's response highlights her faith. It highlights Naomi's faith, I think, even, and the extreme risks that they were taking. She simply states, I am Ruth, your servant. Well, hang on a minute. Boaz suddenly has several options when he found Ruth laying there at his feet. Middle of the night, private setting. First, he could respond to her act as a sexual invitation. That would fit right in with the given culture and the spiritual climate. Second, he could reject Ruth assuming that her actions were that of a prostitute, which was also a common thing on the threshing floor. Or third, Boaz could recognize, he could look a little farther, he could recognize Ruth and Naomi's true desires and respond favorably toward her. You can see the extreme risk in Naomi's plan. Again, perhaps you also see faith from the two widows, faith in God, 
in his silent sovereignty that he would take care of it. And perhaps faith that Boaz would act with integrity. There's a lot hanging in the balance right at this moment. Well, Ruth goes on quickly making her intentions as clear as possible. And notice this goes beyond and changes what Naomi had told her to do. Naomi had said, Boaz will instruct you what to do at this moment. But instead, Ruth tells him what to do. It's actually stated as a demand in the original. In verse 8, it simply says, you will spread your garment over me. I guess she's pretty serious about her intentions. But what is she saying exactly? You might see a translation, something like, take me under your, your wing or spread your wing over me. Boaz, by the way, as we've said, he could, ref- he could see this as a sexual invitation. But no, he was a man of integrity. He knew Ruth better than that, in addition to, to being a man of integrity. That had never been hers nor Naomi's intention. Spread your wing over me. Take me under your protection. What she really is saying, she's using a metaphor, but she's really simply saying, marry me. She's proposing. Now, I don't know what your tradition is like, but uh, even sometimes today, it's a little bit frowned on, uh, or seems at least seems odd, if a woman proposes to a man. Now, that was magnified in that day. Um, not only was she a woman, she was a very low-status woman and a foreigner, reaching out to a prominent man of all things. She asked Boaz to marry her. That alone, I think, could have been enough for Boaz to reject her. Well, in the last line of verse 8, you see why. Why she's asking Boaz. She gives a little bit of a, a reason. Note that it's not for her own romantic fulfillment, because I love you so much, or even for her security primarily. It's because Boaz is a family redeemer. And if they marry there will be a chance to care for Naomi and, in addition, to carry on that family line of Elimelech and Naomi. I think we need to catch that. I think that's pretty important. That's, again, the character of Ruth coming through. That's her primary reason for this proposal. She shifted a little bit beyond what Naomi had said. She's thinking beyond herself. The deep risks that she took tonight were not to have a neat romance story. I mean, who of you has a story like that? Or not an emotionally charged encounter, definitely not a sexual encounter. They weren't even primarily for her own security, for her own happiness, as Naomi had intended. But under all of that, there's a devotion that continues to come through a devotion for Naomi and the family as God had designed it. I think I want to just be sure that we've confirmed Naomi and Ruth's heart in the matter. These two women are not like, it turns out, they are not like Tamar and Lot's daughters. We speculated earlier concerning Naomi's and even Ruth's intentions with the whole plan, but it becomes quite clear, I believe, that this encounter was never to be immoral. That was not their purpose. Naomi devised a risky and even edgy plan. Very edgy, but I think with right intent. 
Naomi, we've seen some problems in her life, right? But she is a believer in Yahweh. And if you think about it, did she just throw Ruth, Ruth into the lion's den, if you will, or was in this scheme, or was she trusting the Lord to take care of the outcome? And then I think it, we're not going to get into it today, but if you look at verse 10 just quickly, Boaz's response clinches the matter as we're, as we're trying to understand Naomi's character here. The blessing that he gives from a righteous man indicates Naomi's plan as well as Ruth's action were well-intended. And though definitely subject to misinterpretation, they were actually a display of chesed. The word that he uses right there is that chesed, kindness, loyalty, faithfulness toward each other. That was the intent behind the whole plan. Well, what about Boaz? As a man of God, he chooses to honor Ruth, to not exploit her. He shows discernment. He shows self-discipline. A few weeks back, I said we should let Boaz teach us a few things about a good love story, about true love. I don't know if you remember that, but listen to this brief story about Matt and Danielle. Matt and Danielle had been married for seven months when Matt was involved in a serious motorcycle crash that put him into a coma. Just nine days after the accident, doctors told Danielle that he had only a 10% chance of ever waking up. They suggested that they remove him from life support and let him go. Danielle refused. Over the next three months, Danielle dressed, changed, fed, and bathed Matt. She didn't give up on her new husband. And God blessed her with a miracle. One day, Danielle was asking Matt to reach for a toy motorcycle, and out of nowhere, he did. Matt has since made slow but consistent progress, regaining his sense of humor, a long-term memory, and even the ability to speak. A story like that has a foundation, doesn't it? There's a foundation to that love story. According to Boaz, I think a good love story is not based solely or even mostly upon romance, chemistry, compatibility, or sex. Romance is not bad. Emotions are not bad. Sex is not bad. But without the guard of integrity, of self-discipline, and of commitment to God these factors in the flesh will reap destruction. I think Boaz here is teaching us about the value of integrity, the value of commitment to God's plan, and the value of self-discipline as foundational to a good love story. Now, these characteristics need to be developed in our personal lives, right? Both young and old. We should do what it takes, I think, to develop these sorts of things Maybe we need accountability. Maybe we need to work specifically on certain habits. And we need to dwell with the Lord daily. I think secondly, Boaz is also teaching us that a good love story puts sexual activity in its proper place. Again, it's a little awkward maybe to speak about this, but it's important. God created sex to be a good and wonderful thing for a man and a woman committed in marriage. That's its proper place. But you ask the world around us, and they disagree with Boaz. 
They disagree with God. In fact, they're in rebellion to that idea. The percentage of people who are self-disciplined in this area in our culture is very, very low. But we need to strive along with Paul here, as he says in Colossians 3, 5. Here God really tells us, Therefore, put to death what belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, and evil desires. Put those things to death. You know, God has good reasons for us to follow His design. Some of those reasons are simply for our good. It benefits us. In defining a good love story, I think Boaz would have us keep sexual activity in its proper place, within the bounds of God-designed marriage. Thirdly, I think Boaz and Ruth are further defining a good love story in that they are not primarily seeking their own good, their own happiness, their own feelings. A good love story is not emotionally driven. Now, there may have been some romance, some attraction, etc. in in their relationship, but it wasn't the motivating factor. Chesed was the motivating factor. Loyalty kindness faithfulness but don't get me wrong it wasn't just utilitarian boaz is helping us define a good love story we may feel emotion attraction romance butterflies those are fine but don't follow your heart don't just seek your own happiness as committed believers to god we're seeking his wisdom We want the best for those around us as well as ourselves. Seek his wisdom. Fourthly and lastly, Boaz is teaching us that God should be at the center of a good love story. Seek him. Dwell with him. Commit to him throughout any relationship. That's essential. As we trust Him and we want His best in a love story, He will protect, He will guide, He will provide, He will make the path known. Don't we want those things? Well, we're just scratching the surface here as we look at some of these subjects. God has a lot more to say in His Word about sexuality, about true love. So I encourage you, keep on learning, keep on processing and thinking and studying. And we will come back to Ruth next week and finish out what Boaz has to say by way of blessing Ruth and even Naomi for their character and their choices. So... Pray with me if you would, and J.D., you can lead us in a song after that. Father, thank you for this passage. A little bit awkward, maybe, a little bit difficult to hear, but it's all around us, and we want the truth, God. We want to know the truth. Thank you that you've forgiven us for the the mistakes in our past. I know those are, are there in our lives in various ways, and thank you that we can now look forward We can leave those things and we can start again. Thank you for Boaz and for Ruth and their character that shines forth even in a dark, dark valley, a dark time of history. I'm grateful that you allowed us to see their purity come forth, 
to see their decisions made. Let us be challenged by those decisions. Let us live out those decisions and, and encourage others in our, in our life to live out their decisions. Just thank you now in Jesus' name.